Have you ever been to a concert and you just knew the band, the music, the lighting, the people around you all seem to fit into this inexplicable storyline tailor-made just for you? Or have you sat quietly perched somewhere and the scenery you were looking at comes together and provides a moment of clarity that, until then, only your subconscious had been hard at work to unravel? Perhaps you are an enlightened soul and these moments are not out of the ordinary. Or perhaps you've taken acid, mushrooms, ayahuasca, or DMT. And they do affect you in the most potent manner. Or both. Lock and tell the door. Today we speak all things spiritual and psychedelic as we welcome Dr. Rick Strassman to the program. You're walking in on another $5 buzz. Hello, boys and girls and all the children of the revolution. Welcome back to season two of the $5 buzz. I am Roger Mayer out in super sunny California, joined by fellow Los Angeles resident Peter Liska. How are you doing on this fine day, sir? Good morning. How are you? I'm great. <laughs> and <we have> always, <laughs> the man with the door shut and the towel properly positioned out in Connecticut, Mr. George Kursar. What's happening, my brother? How is everyone excited to start season two? And uh, we got a great show for you today. Thanks, guys. All right. And as you may have guessed from Pete's cold open that we are here today to discuss a topic that has increasingly become more mainstream in recent years, but will always probably remain somewhat controversial. That is, we are talking about hallucinogens or more specifically DMT. And who better to have this conversation with than with the clinical associate professor at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine, who is the professor of psychiatry at the University of New Mexico, claimed author of such books, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, which was turned into a highly successful documentary on Netflix featuring Joe Rogan, DMT and the Soul of Prophecy, a new science of spiritual revelation in the Hebrew Bible, and his more or less fictional novel, Joseph Levy Escapes Death, a recent novel of his, uh, came out in 2019. We are honored to have Rick Strassman, MD, here with us at $5 Buzz. How are you, Dr. Strassman? Uh, good, good. Hope you guys are all doing well. You're doing just fine, sir. Every, everything good down there. So with uh, you're in New Mexico, right? I'm in Gallup, right, at the edge of the Navajo Nation. Oh, yeah. And uh, how's the weather been treating you lately? It's been great. The monsoons have finally begun. Okay. So we have so many questions for you, but first we would love to get to know you better, uh, Dr. Strassman. I understand that you grew up in my neck of the woods, right, more or less, and graduated in Van Nuys, right? Uh, yeah. I was born at... Uh, you know, Cedar Sinai in Los Angeles, and then I was raised in Van Nuys. I uh, went to Grant High School, James Madison Junior High. Yeah, then went to uh, one of the Claremont Colleges for a couple of years, uh, Stanford, then to the East Coast uh, to you know get my medical degree back to California for you know, psychiatric and uh, fellowship training. Yeah, uh, a stint in Alaska, community mental health in Fairbanks. And I've uh, been in New Mexico for over 30 years with a kind of a hiatus in you know, British Columbia for about you know, five years, Washington State. So I've you know, been around, but I've been in Gallup around 11 years and it feels like home. All right. You seem more like New Mexico now than I guess you did California. I, it's funny because I, you know, I've lived in Van Nuys. I grew up near Claremont. I grew up in West Covina as a kid. Right. Uh, yeah, it, it's just, and I lived right next to Cedar Sinai Hospital. <laughs> so right, right, right. So, um, 
Well, so can you tell us how a nice young man from the Valley would end up becoming an expert in psychiatry, which would lead you to your current third act in life? I guess you could call it as a, as a sort of a, you become a, a public figure through life. You know, you went from being a professor to now you're, I would say you're on a, a you know, celebrity too of sorts, right? Uh, well, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a mix. Yeah. It's been kind of a, um, you know, roundabout, uh, you know, path, uh, starting in, you know, Van Nuys, you know, running track, uh, uh, you know, all that, uh, you know, Valley stuff, you know, learning to, you know, body surf, working on my tan on, uh, you know, during the summer. Um, well, you know, I was you know, raised in a you know, family of alcoholics, and as most you know, kids who are raised in those you know, kinds of families, uh, you know, turn out uh, they're curious about why things are the uh, um, uh, the way they are, uh, the strange behavior all around them that you know doesn't seem to make any sense, you know. So I was always interested in the mind and how you know, people felt and thought and functioned um, and, uh, you know, became interested in Eastern meditation, uh, you know, Buddhism, those kinds of you know, things at an early age as a way to understand, uh, you know, how the mind works. I also, you know, started to uh, experiment with, you know, psychedelics uh, in college. Um, and so uh, at a certain point, the you know, similarities between the two you know, sets of experiences, um, you know, uh, the uh, you know, psychedelic you know, drug state and the states that result from particular uh, you know, forms of uh, meditation uh, uh, struck me as perhaps uh, um, you know, being the result of uh, you know, common you know, biological denominators, like some brain activity was you know, stimulated both through meditation and through psychedelics. Um, and so that uh, um, got me going on uh, understanding, or at least you know, trying to understand the biological bases of spiritual experience. Um, and that, uh, you know, led me, you know, to understanding the mind, which, you uh, was you know the impetus you know for me to go to medical school to become a psychiatrist, um, and I you know got psychiatric training, um, you know then got you know research uh, you know psychopharmacology training um, in La Jolla, uh, spent a year down there, yeah, and uh, then started looking at the pineal gland and you know the role of melatonin as a you know, potential uh, you know naturally occurring. Uh, uh, you know, psychedelic, you know, compound, which, you know, could be activated through meditation, through dreams, uh, and even, uh, um, uh, um, you know, through psychedelics. Uh, so I, um, you know, studied melatonin for a number of years as my first independent you know, research uh, uh, I, uh, study um, at um, the University of New Mexico. Uh, well, so this um, was the mid uh, uh, 1980s, and you know there wasn't you know much uh, you know known about um, melatonin at the time. You know, so we kind uh, of a pioneer in that, right? 
Yeah, yeah. We actually, you know, discovered the first known function of melatonin in humans, which was to regulate core body temperature. Um, you know, core body temperature, uh, uh, you know, bottoms out at your know, three in the morning, um, and the, the, you know that corresponds, um, uh, you know, to the highest you know levels of uh, uh, melatonin in in the body as well. Um, you know, but you know, psychologically, all that melatonin was doing, uh, you know, was to cause sedation. Uh, you know, psychologically, anyway. You know, so um, you know, by then I had learned about uh, um, uh, you know DMT, um, you know, which is uh, extremely psychedelic and is also uh, you know made in um, uh, the human body, and uh, I you know kind of you know changed. Uh, uh, you know, um, your research focus, uh, and then I'm embarked on starting the DMT project uh, in uh, the late 1980s. Yeah, right in the middle during the Reagan era. <laughs> well, you know, during uh, the first, you know, Bush era. Well, it was you know deep in the war on drugs, and you know, my funding, you know, came from the war on drugs. You know, it's an interesting. Uh, story like a you know, couple of years before starting the DMT um, study I was interested in you know doing a uh, MDMA uh, 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 you know, research project uh, and you know that was uh, you know quashed you know, because of the war on drugs and the questions about you know, neurotoxicity and uh, MDMA uh, you, you know, so I was quite, you know, cautious in, you know, terms of, uh, you know, couching the DMT study in, uh, you know, form that would be acceptable, uh, you know, to the powers that be. Uh, you know, so Terrence you know, um, McKenna and I were friends back then, and I spent an afternoon at his, uh, uh, you know, home up in Marin County, up in his loft, and we brainstormed and brainstormed and we brainstormed. And you know, finally, um, you know, we concluded that um, uh, we would get, or I would get, um, you know, funding, you know, from the war on, uh, you know, drugs, you know, to give, uh, you know, DMT to my friends, you know, to characterize its effects. So that's you know basically um, what we did instead of uh, you know calling DMT an incredibly, unbelievably interesting. Uh, you know, compound, uh, we, or I, uh, you know, phrased it or, you know, contextualized it as, you know, it's an abused drug, might be involved in schizophrenia because it's, you know, produced in the body. Uh, we have to understand the brain chemistry. Uh, you, you know, so we did, or I you know, put together, you know, the exact study, you know, that I would have in any case, but, um, you know, couched it um, in terms which were consistent with uh, an approach of the war on drugs. That's interesting. I, I, around that time, is that the same time that, because I found it interesting, interesting in the spirit molecule book, uh, I don't think you touched that in the documentary, that you found some funding from the Scottish Rite Institute? Yeah, is yeah. Yeah, yeah I started, um, yeah, my first... Uh, um, uh, um, you know, funding uh, it came uh, you know, from the Scottish Wright Foundation for Schizophrenia Research, which is a branch of the Masons. 
Um, one of my uh, mentors at the time um, was on the uh, scientific um, advisory board um, you know, for that foundation. And um, when and so when DMT was you know, first discovered in human you know, body tissues, human fluids, you know, body fluids, um, it was speculated you know, that perhaps increases in the amounts um, of DMT were responsible you know, for naturally um, occurring psychosis, um, like schizophrenia, mania. And uh, you know, the Scottish Rite Foundation you know, was interested in schizophrenia and it was a you know, part of uh, the Mason's you know, benevolent activities. Um, and you know, my mentor, you know, Danny Friedman at UCLA at the time said, I'm on their board, I can get you funding, you know, submit a grant to them. Uh, and you know, so that was you know, my first you know, DMT grant. Going backwards a little bit, I know that George had a, a pretty interesting question for you that sort of goes back to around 1969 again, if we go backwards in time for a minute. Yeah, Dr. Strassman, uh, 1969, you had the virtue of graduating high school, I believe, in 69. What was it like coming from the apex of uh, psychedelic experimentation to uh, the brakes being hit really hard in 71 when those chemicals were outlawed? And, uh, you know, 69 was Altamont, the Manson murders. We also are hearing now that uh, some of the U.S. intelligence agencies were active uh, using psychedelics for their purposes. Uh, did you know anything about that? And have you uh, encountered any of those folks along your travels? Well, you know, I was a, a you know, real goody two-shoes in high school. I never drank, never smoked, never had sex. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was completely, uh, you know, middle class, you know, Jewish, white, you know, blue collar, you know, climbing up to white collar kind of activities in the valley. Um, yeah, one of my you know, friends in high school. Wait, uh, blue collar back then meant middle class. <laughs> right, right. It, it you know, was, you know, the beginning of, you know, the Los Angeles, you know, um, uh, you know, middle class. Everybody, you know, moved to Southern California after World War II. You know, that's where the jobs were. Um, you know, my dad was an electrical engineer, you know, worked for Hughes Aircraft. Um, you know, work for, uh, you know, Litton Industries. Um, yeah. Um, you, you, well, so I had, you know, no idea what was going on. Uh, we, um, you know, one of my uh, you know, high school uh, friends came to a high school, uh, you know, came, uh, you know, drunk once, um, you know, uh, to a football game. And uh, we just all, you know, shunned him because of his strange behavior. Um, you know, so I didn't, uh, you know, drink any beer and, um, until I was, uh, you know, freshman in college. Uh, yeah, I started let alone, let alone psychedelics. <laughs> yeah, well, I hit the ground running once I did, you know, I started <laughs> to drink beer, then gin and tonics, and then pop and psychedelics. So I you know, made up for lost time, you know, but uh, still, um, um, you know, the Manson stuff. Uh, you know, the Woodstock stuff, uh, Altamont, all of that was occurring, you know, the summer of, uh, you know, 1969. Well, and, uh, well, so don't forget, uh, you know, the Vietnam you know, War as well, and uh, Kent State and Jackson State. Um, you know, so it, it was, 
you know, very uh, and a civil rights movement, of course. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. And a civil rights movement, of course, and you know, yeah. riots in Los Angeles that came just before it, and you know, there was a lot of weirdness in Los Angeles. You also, know. the name of one of Pete's favorite uh, songs by a Canadian rocker. But I digress. <laughs> yeah, it, it was complete you know, pandemonium. Um, yeah, but still, you know, you get baptized by fire, and uh, you come through, and you try to make you know, sense of it. And in you know, my case, uh, um, with my you know, sense of curiosity as it is, um, I was interested in studying it, understanding it. You know, potentially, I'm applying you know some of the stuff that that was coming out of that maelstrom. Uh, you know, for the greater good, if I could. That's fantastic. Um, so, all right. So, moving forward, let's talk about. I mean, when did you? You you kind of gave us a little taste of it. So you started through melatonin, the pineal gland, and DMT. I mean, when did you start practically applying to you know with subjects or yourself? When was the first time you did DMT? I mean, just personally. Yeah, um, well, that's a, a you know question that early on I was you know kind of you know loath you know to answer. Well, I would tell people you know if I uh, you know say that I've smoked you know DMT, I would be accused of you know being a zealot, and if I you know said I'd never smoked you know DMT, I would be accused of not knowing you know what I was talking about. You know, but as you know time. You know, has gone on. I figured I don't have anything to lose by you know telling the truth. Yeah, you know, so it's a bit embarrassing, but you know, not entirely. So I've only really smoked DMT one time. Wow! Uh, and it was in the 1994. No, yeah, no, uh, you know, 1986, I think. You know, Terrence McKenna gave it to me. Uh, You're gonna get DMT from someone. I get that somebody to get it from. <laughs> Yeah, it was the ideal set of circumstances. I was at a meeting uh, in California. I had you know just given a, you know lecture about you know DMT in the pineal gland, and you know Terrence came up afterwards and he said, "You're talking about DMT. You want to try some?" So I said, "Of course." Yeah, uh, yeah. So that was at a meeting in '86, I think, uh, in California. Yeah, so and it was. I, I, I'm the most experienced on this panel today. <laughs> what we're saying. <laughs> well, you've done it twice then. Oh no, 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 no. I've done it way more than twice. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so it completely blew my mind. I, uh, I mean, I was, uh, you know, lying down, eyes closed, you know, dark room. And, uh, you know, there's this flaming waterfall of, um, of color and out from this you know, waterfall emerged a half a dozen you know, things, you know, beings around, you know, four feet tall. Uh, and they, you know, repeatedly asked me, you know, telepathically anyway, now do you see, now do you see, now do you see? And I was just uh, slack-jawed as it were, uh, you know, psychologically or, you know, psychically. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that lasted a few minutes and uh, I came down and uh, wondered what the hell was that and what does it mean? And, uh, I want to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, you know, so, you know, I stopped the melatonin work, uh, you know, wrapped that up, started, you know, thinking about how to do a study with DMT. And that singular experience is very profound. That's uh, That says a lot about DMT. 
Well, yeah, yeah. It meant to me or it means to me, I mean, even nowadays that just one big, you know, trip on your know, DMT is all you may really need to change course and uh, you know, find direction. I would admit that too. I mean, the, you know, I've done various types of hallucinogenic drugs um, or hallucinogens, we'll just say. And the DMT experiences are the ones that like a, like a real, um, what's the term for when you have a, a dream that you can re- easily remember? What's the terminology? It's like that. It's like that one dream you always remember that you had. Lucid? Yeah, lucid. That's right. And so I, it's like a lucid dream and that the DMT experiences, I can almost tell you verbatim every time I've taken it, what happened to me during that time. Several times that I've done LSD, I can't necessarily remember everything that I've done during those periods. But DMT is always, I can always refer back to it and remember vividly what happened to me during that experience. It's very strange. Yeah, it is very strange. Uh, well, you know, if you watch the uh, you know DMT documentary, uh, you know, keep in mind, you know that uh, you know a number of the volunteers speaking about their experiences are referring you know back to you know something which occurred fifteen years before, sixteen years before, and uh, if you're listening and you're watching them. It's as if it happened just yesterday. It's it's as clear as a you know it, it it's as you know clear as could be, um, and I think you know one of you know the reasons is because one of you know the hallmarks of the DMT effect is the feeling of it being more real than real. It's the most you know real solid thing which has ever happened to you, and uh, you know oftentimes. Uh, you know, once, uh, you know, the volunteers, you know, came out of the you know, DMT state in response to the, you know, big dose, you know, they would say, I feel like I've been marked, like I've been marked, I've you know, been initiated, you know, you know, something has, you know, changed inside of me. Um, and uh, it's got that kind of, uh, you know, resonance, like an after effect, like a, you know, bell's been rung or a you know, pebble's been thrown into a pond. Uh, it's a, uh, you know, nodal experience. Yeah, I mean, it gets to the point of a death of ego. You know, it's it's a palatable experience. Dr. Strassman, um, without getting too into the minutia of the science of it, I'm still just curious. I, I understand the pineal the pineal gland produces melatonin, is what you're saying. But right. where does where does DMT come from, and how is it related to melatonin? Yeah, um, well, both of you know the compounds um, are what you might call you know chemical cousins of serotonin. Uh, you know they're both tryptamines. Well, all three of them are tryptamines. You know serotonin is you know five hydroxy tryptamine. You know melatonin is you know six is, uh, is uh, an acetyl. Uh, I can't remember its formula right now. Yeah, but it's a, 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 a tryptamine as well, uh, and you know clearly you know DMT is too. Um, well, back in the day, you know, people, you know, were believing, um, you know, that the lung was the you know, main source of DMT in the mammal. Um, and, uh, you know, then I speculated about, you know, the pineal gland, you know, producing DMT, you know, all of the components are there to make DMT, you know, the enzymes, the precursors, uh, like, you know, tripti- um, well, like tryptamine, you know, mm-hmm. methyl, uh, uh, you know, donating compounds, SAM. Um, and, 
you know, that you know, pineal you know, theory stimulated you know, some research at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Jimo Borjigan and her grad student, John Dean. And in uh, you know, 2013, you know, they published um, a paper demonstrating DMT in the living rodent pineal gland. Um, you know, so that was, you know, great, you know, confirmation yeah. of you know, my theory from a long time ago. Um, you know, but, you know, two years ago, you know, the same group, um, you know, looked more carefully at the production of, uh, you know, DMT. And, uh, you know, they discovered a couple things, you know, one is the brain makes DMT. Uh, and, you know, number two is uh, the study, you know, from their lab in 2013, which uh, you know, demonstrated uh, you know, pineal DMT, you know, may have resulted from extraneous uh, you know, brain tissue, which was, you know, um, you know captured when the you know, probe went into the pineal gland. Um, and you know, they weren't in you know, 2019 able, you know, to demonstrate DMT in the pineal, it you know, may have been an artifact of, you know, snagging you know, brain tissue in the way in or out of the pineal. You know, so, you know, the jury is still out, you know, whether the pineal makes DMT. You know, the lung does not, it appears, but the brain does. Um, and, you know, that's even more interesting. You know, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, what's DMT doing in the brain? Um you know, why is the brain making, uh, you know, DMT? Uh, and even, you know, more interesting is that the concentrations of DMT in the mammalian brain are as high as those, you know, uh, you know found, <clears throat> you know, for neurotransmitters, um, you know, like serotonin or um, like dopamine. You know, so, you know, people are interested in, you know, determining whether there's a DMT neurotransmitter system in the in uh, the brain you know comparable you know to the serotonin you know neurotransmitter mm -hmm. system responsible for mood you know the dopamine um you know neurotransmitter system responsible you know for reward and for pleasure um you know concentrations of you know dmt in the brain increase by you know three to five times in uh, the dying animal as well you know that was established uh with the study from you know, 2019, and, you know, concentrations especially increase in the visual cortex in the dying brain. Wow. You, you know, so you have all of these, you know, threads, which, you know, you can start, you know, tie together for, um, <clears throat> you know, possible, you know, role of brain DMT. Um, it, you know, could be a neurotransmitter, in which case it is, you know, tempting to speculate that, you know, one of its, you know, functions anyway is, you know, to mediate our uh, uh, sense of reality, you know, because, you know, the hallmark of a big you know, DMT effect is this is more real than real. Um, yeah. And you start understanding the you know, function of a, of a, um, of a uh, you know, neuro um, uh, you know, transmitter, you know, by the um, effects of, uh, you know, drugs, which modify that neurotransmitter. You know, so the SSRIs improve mood, uh, you know, serotonin mood, mm -hmm. you know, um, stimulants are quite rewarding, you know, so stimulants, you know, dopamine and reward uh, and, you know, DMT, you know, real you know, DMT, uh, is it that 
our ongoing sense of reality is mediated by fluctuations in a speculative or you know hypothetical you know, DMT uh, uh, you know neurotransmitter system. Um, it increases you know during death and in you know the visual cortex and you know the NDE is quite visual you know the near death experience. Um, also, it's you know, quite interesting you know that DMT is uh, neuroprotective in uh, in conditions of uh, you know low oxygen. You know, so if you've got a starving, well, if you have a you know brain which is uh, you know starving for oxygen, um, uh, you know DMT um, appears uh, you know to reduce you know the damage which occurs in. Wow. You know, conditions of you know low oxygen, and um, over the last you know, couple of years, um, you know there's a, a, a group up at UC Davis, um, which is uh, you know demonstrating that DMT increases uh, n- n- neurogenesis. Um, in other words, you know stem cells becoming neurons, and it also increases neuroplasticity. Uh, you know, which is um, you know the number and complexity. Uh, um, you know, connections among, um, among nerve cells, you know, so there is a, uh, you know, kind of a story, you know, which is evolving, uh, you know, for a, uh, you know, role um, uh, of DMT in your brain health, on your brain survival from uh, your trauma. Um, you know, so, you know, that's being exploited or you're beginning uh, to be exploited therapeutically. Um, I'm consulting with a you know, Canadian uh, you know, pharmaceutical company that's interested in, in uh, using DMT to reduce acute stroke size and really? to improve um, you know, rehabilitation uh, after stroke. You know, those are you know, some you know, very you know, pilot uh, you know, studies which are beginning, uh, you know, TBI, you know, traumatic you know, brain injury, um, mm-hmm. you know, may be responsive, you know, to DMT, you know, so it's, you know, in a way it's like, you know, brain food or brain fertilizer. Well, yeah. I mean, t- fascinating. I mean, two thoughts immediately that come to mind are that I'm just thinking of my grandfather who, who after he passed away, discovered, they discovered he had nine strokes. Cause I guess they, they mark, once you have a stroke, it kind of marks on your brain and in a, autopsy they can determine that so i wonder if in those experiences he would he um you know there was a release of dmt or any or any such type thing like that and also i kind of find it quite comforting to know that perhaps as you die you may be experiencing this release of dmt into your brain is that kind of what you're suggesting yeah yeah well it's still an interesting question uh you know, to uh, speculate around though, you know, why is a, a, you know, compound which improves perhaps your recovery or protection against your brain trauma, you know, why is it psychedelic? You know, why isn't it, you know, simply sedating or, you know, no effect at all, you know, psychologically, you know, so that's, uh, you know, kind of you know, takes us into a more you know, metaphysical uh, speculation. You know, like is DMT being released, and if so, you know, why is it you know, psychedelic? You know, why isn't it you know simply 
uh, you know, sedating or, you know, no effect at all. Uh, and if you want to get, you know, metaphysical, you can think, well, perhaps it's, you know, kind of what your, your consciousness is experiencing on your way out of the body. Yeah. Um, and it is the means by which you begin to apprehend what occurs after death or in death or just before death. Uh, you, you, you know, so you need, you know, to think about, you know, why uh, your neuroprotective agent is uh, you know, psychedelic. So if you smoke DMT or, I mean, I'm, no. so I'm, it's in a, um, well, what's that form? Roger, like uh, Changa, uh, it's a um, a resin kind of form, you know. And uh, how how is that made? Because and and also when you do take it like that, that's what your conscious mind is is kind of uh, amplifying, or you know you know you know what I'm saying. If if that happens when you die, but then you take it recreationally, is that? Mm-hmm. Is it fair to say that that's your maybe your subconscious talking to you or or something along those lines? Um, well, there's two questions. You know, one is you know what are you smoking? Um, and yeah. well, you know, generally uh, you you either smoke extracted you know DMT you know from botanical sources or you smoke uh, you know laboratory uh, you know made uh, you know mm-hmm. drug from you know which is made from scratch. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, if it's pure DMT, it, it is pure DMT. Um, it's like you know, vitamin C. If it's you know, from a lemon, it's still vitamin C. If it's made in a lab, it's still vitamin C. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so the issue is uh, you know, purity, impurities, contaminants, you know, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you smoke the free base. Uh, you vaporize it and you inhale you know, the vapor. Um, yeah, you know, we gave it intravenously. It was a uh, you know water soluble uh, you know, salt of DMT, um, but still, uh, it's it, uh, you know ultimately, um, you're increasing the concentrations in your blood, and then ultimately your brain. Yeah, and you know that stimulates the trip. Um, well, so if DMT is uh, you know being um, in if if you're if there is more you know, DMT in your brain as you're dying, you know, then uh, you're in a way, uh, you know, doing a dry run, a you know, practice you know, session, you know, for you know, naturally occurring you know, DMT you know, to increase. Um, so, you know, one could imagine that if you, you were interested in being able to negotiate, you know, the near, you know, the near death, you know, world that you would get, um, you know, some practice uh, through smoking, you know, DMT, you know, when you're alive and well. It's absolutely fascinating, actually. I mean, it's pretty weird. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Strassman, just a quick question uh, on um, the medical purposes. I'm not sure if you're aware of a doctor up at Yale. I'm here in Connecticut. So I have some knowledge of his work, Dr. Ostroff. Uh, he uses ketamine, which I think the most of us on this panel would know as a street drug, but it's kind of interesting that that's starting to get more acceptance for mental health purposes. Uh, have you uh, spent any time uh, with that compound at all? Well, a couple, well, uh, you, well, well, so ketamine is a, a synthetic drug. 
um, it's you know, closely related you know, to PCP. Um, yeah, and it was uh, discovered in the you know, 60s, I think, early 70s. Yeah, and it's still used in uh, you know, practice, you know, clinical you know, uh, you know, medicine. Uh, you know, mostly it was used as an anesthetic agent um, because it maintains your blood pressure and your respiratory, uh, you know, drive as you know, compared to other general anesthetics. And wasn't it a horse tranquilizer too? It still is used in your know, veterinary medicine. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a street drug. You dissociate, you're, you're kind of loopy. You can, uh, you can travel out of body. You can encounter entities. I have no um, idea what you're talking about. Yeah, you know, so John Lilly you know, popularized its you know, recreational use you know, back in the you know, 1960s and uh, the 1970s. Yeah, and it, it, it you know, had been used underground for a number of years uh, you know, for pain, you know, for depression, uh, you know, for addiction. And uh, you know, then a group at Yale you know, discovered it, it was an antidepressant, which worked instantly. You know, this was a study by John Crystal and his group in the early 90s. Um, you, and you know that uh, and that small Yale study was you know kind of you know forgotten for a number of years, but you know, but then you know resurrected. Um, and uh, you know there's a huge interest in uh, the you know, psychotherapeutic uses of uh, you know, ketamine now. You, you know there are uh, you know ketamine you know clinics that are just you know springing up everywhere. Uh, you know, there's a spray in your nose called spray Vato, which is a expensive, you know, pharmaceutical now, you know, which is used to treat, you know, treatment resistant depression. Uh, it's being used for pain. It's being used, you know, for addiction. You know, one of my colleagues in St. Petersburg, Russia has been using ketamine for, you know, heroin addiction, opiate addiction, alcohol, you know, tobacco addiction. Yeah. You know, so you give smaller doses than those used, you know, for anesthesia. Um, and it you know, gives you a trip for about you know 45 minutes, you know 60 minutes or so. Uh, you come down, you have you know more or less uh, you know counseling or you know psychotherapy to help you integrate. You know, but still, um, you know that you know the uh, you know therapeutic uh, uh, you know communication. You know, the psychotherapy itself you know may not be all that you know necessary. It it you know, may just be the um, effect of the compound itself, you know, ketamine also stimulates uh, um, neuroplasticity, neurogenesis in the space of an hour or uh, more two, which corresponds, you know, to the acute antidepressant uh, um, effects as well. You, you know, so the acute effects of you know, ketamine on you know, neuroplasticity and uh, neurogenesis also uh, occur um, with DMT. You know, so that has you know, stimulated an interest in using acute injections of DMT as an antidepressant as well in you know, cases of uh, treatment resistant depression. And you know, speaking of Yale, you know, there's a a uh, study which uh, began about a month or two ago of, you know, DMT, you know, for depression, uh, you know, Cyril D'Souza is doing that in the, you know, the psychiatry department, um, you know, so ketamine in a way, you know, paved the way, you know, for acute, you know, psychedelic uh, you know, treatment of depression and it'll expand it um, into uh, any number of other, 
you know, conditions, you know, which are otherwise, you know, uh, uh, you know quite difficult, uh, you know, to treat, you know, pain, uh, you know, TBI, stroke, depression, addictions, all those things. The small, and I'll just, uh, yes, I've taken ketamine and the small doses, you, there is a sense of euphoria in the larger doses, which leads you down what they know as a K-hole, as we call it. Um, it's has been uh, both a terrifying experience for me <laughs> and has been a uh, relevatory you know, experience one time uh, in a very unnatural setting at a party at a New Year's Eve party. That that experience was fine. The, the ironically, the more uh, quieter time I had it was uh, a nightmare for me. <laughs> Absolutely a nightmare. I had to cling literally to because it's so dissociative. Right. So it's it has this. You, you have a real weird, I mean, not unlike DMT on some levels, you, there's absolutely right. But DMT, because you're prone, you know, in a, in you're in, lying down, you close your eyes and there's a, there's a, you know, if you have the right meditation going on, you know, there is a sense of well-being once you allow yourself to let that overcome you. But with the, that first ketamine attack, that attack with that, that nightmarish experience, it was only because a gentleman was wearing an all red suit and he looked like Santa Claus. And somehow I had him sit next to me for me to ground myself. Uh, this poor guy where I was at the Sundance film festival, working the film festival. And um, uh, so we were, we were trying to, uh, anyway, I just want to say that that's uh, my experiences between the two were far different, even though there are, I could see some similarities between them. I, I would m- much rather do another hit of DMT than go down another K hole again. That's all I can tell you. Yeah, I think that's uh, you know common experience. Well, yeah, ketamine is strange. It's a completely synthetic drug. You know, there's no uh, you know ketamine analogs in the brain. There's no ketamine in the brain. Um, yeah, and you know what you're sp- you know speaking about uh, you know points to the importance of you know set and setting. Right. Uh, you know, like, you know, what's your state at the time? What's the condition of those around you? You know, who are you around? What's your, your preparation, your mental, physical health, all that stuff. Just woohoo. <laughs> was none of that in either of those scenarios. Right. Yeah. Uh, the irresponsibility of back in the day when you were at a party and you decided to end the night by taking two hits of acid. Not necessarily the best idea. <laughs> well, you know, I was in analysis, you know, psychoanalysis, uh, you know, for a number of years in my 30s. And I was you know, talking about, you know, some of my exploits. And I, I you know, said, well, I think I'm lucky to be alive. And, you know, my analyst was usually extremely quiet. And he just chimed in and said, you are lucky to be alive. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, the kinds of you know things that we escape from uh, or we just, you know, kind of get out in the nick of time are kind of remarkable. You know, it does um, bring up a, an interesting topic, though, that's relevant in that there's a kind of in vogue term called microdosing, you know, and now I've heard, I've read different conflicting things about it. Some say, some scientists say you can no more regulate your LSD intake, for example, then you can regulate water in a desert. You either take it or you don't. Do you, is there any truth to taking a small amount of this micro dosing as people are saying, uh, therapeutically or even recreationally? Um, and is there a benefit to it or is it, or is it silliness more or less? 
Yeah, um, well, it's just being, uh, you know, studied in, uh, you know, clinical, you know, research, uh, you know, now. Uh, it is extremely popular in the field, uh, you know, recreationally or, or on your own underground. Yeah, you know, but it's, you know, only now, you know, being looked at more carefully, you know, scientifically. Well, there's two questions or, the, you know, there's two you know, separate issues when it comes to microdosing. You know, one is the dose, and uh, the other is the frequency. Um, and let's talk about you know the dose you know, first. Um, I think there's like three ways of thinking about you know dosing, microdosing. You know, one could be that it's you know that the acute um, effects are negligible. You uh, you barely if you know feel anything at all. Um, you know, the other is you take a slightly higher dose, which would be like, you know, caffeine, it'd be kind of stimulating acutely. Um, and, you know, the third would be an even higher microdose, which would, you know, kind of you know, make things a bit sparkly in the room. And it would be an intimation of what might happen if you increase the dose even more. Um, you, you, you know, so if you're looking at LSD, for example, like a small, small microdose would be maybe three to five micrograms. Um, uh, you know, caffeine-like, you know, mild stimulant microdose would be, you know, five to 10 micrograms, let's say, you know, kind of a sparkly dose would be, you know, 10 to, uh, uh, you know, 20, let's say. Yeah. And, you know, once you are on, or, you know, once you experiment or you take, you know, 25 micrograms, <laughs> you know, then it's kind of a, uh, like a small trip. Mm -hmm. um, and, a, a, you know, full dose would be, 150, 200, you know, 300 micrograms. Um, if you take a small, small, you know, next, well, if you take a small dose of any, you know, sort, uh, like on, uh, on an everyday basis, you know, like every day, like, you know, for months on end, it would be, you know, comparable, I think, uh, you know, psychopharmacologically, you know, brain chemistry wise, as if you were on an antidepressant, you know, like an SSR. Really? Yeah. And, you know, back in the day, they, you know, they, uh, you know, ran a few studies with, you know, depressives giving a small, you know, dose of LSD every day. Uh, and, you know, people's depression improved after a week or two or three um, of daily small LSD dosing. Um, and the brain chemistry, you know, changes which occur with everyday uh, you know, dosing of LSD is you know, comparable to the kinds of brain receptor uh, you know, changes which occur with everyday uh, exposure to an SSRI. Uh, you know, so if you are you know, taking a small amount of LSD every day for, you know, like for you know, weeks or months, it would be, I think, you know, like taking an SSRI. You know, there would be you know, gradual um, improvement in you know, mood you know, uh, especially um, if you're just, you know, taking it every so often, you aren't going to be noticing a lot um, until you're up to the slightly higher, uh, you know, microdosing. Uh, and you could, you know, take that, you know, whenever you want and you would get an acute effect uh, like, you know, some euphoria, extra energy mm -hmm. at the you know, medium dose and some extra, you know, creativity or mm -hmm. um, aesthetic um, appreciation at the, on your third highest you know, microdose. Do you believe in the that a tolerance or a conditioning happens if you do it the this uh, daily low 
microdose amount situation? Yeah, you know, there would be tolerance to the subjective effects uh, if you were on, you know, the higher of the three, you know, microdoses. And if you were, uh, uh, you're taking it every day for even a few days, you would have tolerance to those effects. You know, but if you continue taking it, there would still be the gradual, you know, down regulation of receptors responsible for the mood uh, improving effects. It's uh, it's uh, really fascinating to have a uh, to get a handle on even just those that information alone. I think people will find extremely useful as they navigate this world and as um, the use of psychedelics seems to be experiencing some kind of renaissance. Would you would you say that's fair too? Oh, it's completely it's completely out of the world. Yeah. Well, like um, well, I started my studies in you know, nineteen ninety. And I just you know, came out of nowhere, Albuquerque, New Mexico, infusing DMT. Um, and people really had no idea what was going on. I, I, well, I had no idea what was going on. I mean, I was giving DMT in a complete you know, vacuum, intellectually, cognitively, spiritually. Yeah, you know, the war on you know, drugs was, you know, waging quite heavily. You know, I, I spent um, a couple of years, you know, working out a you know, system with FDA and, you know, the DEA to give Schedule One psychedelic to humans. That, you know, that took two years. And Incredible. then, uh, you know, gave DMT uh, and, you know, psilocybin as well, uh, you know, for five years. And then, you know, nobody really quite you know, caught on. There were no collaborators. I was, you know, kind of the lone voice in the wilderness. You know, did my, I, I you know, did my work. I uh, figured, well, you know, I can't you know do it alone any longer. There wasn't any help, and I just moved on. You know, so you know, ten years later, you know, there's the Hopkins uh, you know papers, you know, giving you know, psilocybin and causing mystical experiences. And um, you know, because you know, Hopkins is Hopkins, you know, they've got this huge you know, PR machine uh, and it you know, kind of you know, got everybody else interested. Um, yeah, so that you know, Hopkins you know, paper you know, came out you know, 10 years after I completed my studies. Um, and then the intervening you know, 15 years, there's been Michael Pollan's book. Um, and you know, uh, uh, you know, there's a huge interest in you know, commercializing uh, you know, psychedelics. Uh, you know, therapeutically, you know, but also, you know, from you know, the wellness perspective, uh, retreat centers, you know, clinics, mm-hmm. you know, decriminalize, you know, nature, you know, legalize, you know, psychedelics, uh, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and over, <clears throat> well, and over the last, you know, maybe 18 you know, months or so, um, I've been getting, you know, quite a few, uh, requests uh you know to consult you know for these uh, uh, you know psychedelic uh, you know startups you know like oh, Good. you know there's dmt out there you know it isn't as you know long acting as you know psilocybin it's endogenous and, you know might be helpful for all you know uh you know for all kinds of things um and it's fun <laughs> and it's fun that's you know that's a an important aspect, which I think is, uh, you know, being overridden, you know, by the fact that it's good for you. Um, yeah, you know, so you have to keep in mind, you know, that psychedelics are not just, you know, super Prozacs. You know, that's, you know, not what makes, you know, psychedelics, you know, psych- uh, you know psychedelics. Um, I think in, uh, in the, you know, rush 
uh, you know, to medicalize, uh, you know, psychedelics and to, and to, you know, normalize them, you know, you know, that they're therapeutic as opposed to they're very weird and they, uh, you know, tell us, or, you know, they ask us, you know, to look at the mind and, uh, 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 and, you know, consciousness itself in a, you know, novel manner, you know, that's, in a way, I, I, you know, being over, uh, you know, like overridden, um, you know, by, the, uh, you know, the rush, uh, uh, you know, to commercialize, to medicalize, uh, you know, to normalize them. Um, you know, so it's, it's uh, I suppose it's, you know, kind of like Austin, uh, you know, like Austin, Texas, you know, keep Austin weird. <laughs> uh, you know, so um, I think, you know, we should keep, you know, psychedelics weird too, you know, because, uh, you know, that's what, you know, got them popular um, in the first place. Right. It's, you know, what, you know, demonized them in uh, the second place. And, uh, you know, we ought, uh, you know, to not forget that they're really uh, interesting, you know, fascinating, uh, strange, inexplicable. Um you know, it's important, you know, that we develop, you know, new, uh, you know, therapies, you know, but at uh, the same time, we ought not to forget what, you know, psychedelics are. Yeah, Dr. Str- be respected. Yeah, go ahead, George. Sorry. Uh, sorry to cut you off. Dr. Strassman, you spent a lot of your personal and professional life in the great state of New Mexico. A lot of other uh, luminaries such as Carl Jung, Ansel Adams, George O'Keefe did the same. Do you think there's something uh, fateful that drew you to that state? Uh, and w- how did it, 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 do you think there's a higher reason that you, you did your studies at the University of New Mexico? Um, yeah, that's an interesting story. Um, when I graduated from high school, my best you know, friend and I took a road trip and we uh, went to Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, and then came back home. The four yeah, corners. We were, and you know, when we were driving, you know, between you know, Santa Fe to Taos, um, I was you know keeping a little journal, and I said, "I love New Mexico. I want to come back here sometime." You know, this was you know, uh, you know, 1969. Um, yeah, and a number of years later, I was doing my psychopharmacology uh, you know, fellowship at UC San Diego um, with a guy named John Lasansky. And, you know, John had, you know, done his, uh, you know, psychiatry, you know, residency at UNM in, uh, I'm in Albuquerque. Um, and, uh, you know, after we completed our year of, you know, um, of training down there, you know, um, I returned, you know, to UC Davis, you know, where I had, you know, done, uh, you know, my psychiatry residency. Um, and, you know, John went back to UNM. And about a year later, he was getting married in Albuquerque and he said, you know, coming out to Albuquerque, you know, visit UNM, you know, this it's a small department of you know, psychiatry. You might like it here. And, you know, they have a very strong, uh, you know, clinical, uh, you know, research uh, 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 center, which is being underutilized and you might, you know, find it interesting. Um, and I went out there, uh, you know, John got married, um, and uh, I interviewed with, you know, the psychiatry department, and also interviewed, you know, with a, the director of the, uh, of, you know, the clinical, uh, you know, research uh, unit there, uh, um, a, a, a pediatric neuroendocrinologist, um, who was interested in, you know, melatonin, um, because of its anti-reproductive effects in kids, 
a man in elite athletes. And uh, well, well, so we just hit it off, you know, me and uh, uh, the pediatric, uh, you know, neuroendocrinologist. You know, he said, you know, we could write a, a melatonin grant. You know, we could get it, you know, funded. We've got you know tons of money here. Wow. Um, and I thought to myself, well, I could do you know psychedelic research here, um, and it would be under the radar because it's Albuquerque. You know, who knows where Albuquerque even is? Um, yeah, you know, Walter so, White. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> Walter White knows where it is. Walter White knows, but yeah, this was you know, 1984 yeah. or so. <laughs> yeah, you know, so um, I went out there, studied melatonin. You know, my sponsor died actually a few years later, and I uh, was you know free to you know branch out into the DMT world. Um, you know, so in a way, it was good you know to be in Albuquerque, uh, you know, because you know it was a you know libertarian uh, you know research unit. Like you could do what you wanted to, um, as long as you uh, were were. Uh, uh, you know, careful, and you were, um, you know, doing your studies with you know, scientific rigor, and I was in you know, both cases. You know, the melatonin work, I'm um, in the DMT work. You know, but in a way, it was, you know, not all that helpful to you know get the word out. There was really, you know, no way to you know, publicize our work. It was you know just too small scale, you know, for the rest of the country. Um, you know, but overall, I mean, that was the you know, best. Uh, uh, you know, place to do that work, you know, the kind of scrutiny I would have gotten if I was in LA or New York or, you know, Seattle, you know, would have been uncomfortable, you know, so I was, I'm able to, you know, freely go about my business uh, with, you know, very few constraints, uh, you know, I'm at the university level. They often call the mountain time zone, the forgotten time zone, <laughs> to your point. But uh, it seems that New Mexico, uh, the landscape and the spiritual and ethereal uh, aspect of it goes hands in hands with your work. So it seems like a great setting for it. Well, it's an extremely uh, you know, creative place. You know, the atomic bomb uh, it was developed up at Los Alamos. Um, and, you know, White Sands you know, missile base is, you know, where it went off. Um, yeah, you know, there's two national laboratories uh, in the state, you know, Sandia, you know, national, you know, laboratories as well. Yeah, but the landscape is, uh, you know, quite extraordinary. Uh, you, you know, there's a huge, you know, native, uh, you know, population as well, you know, the Navajo and the Pueblo, the Apache. Um, and, you know, it's Hispanic too, it's Hispanic majority. Uh, and, you know, then the Anglos and, you know, the natives. Uh, you know, so it's a you know, very interesting, stimulating, you know, creative you know, mix of cultures and this incredible landscape. And it's sparsely populated uh, and it's, you know, kind of a, you know, Wild West mentality in a lot of ways. You can, you know, do what you want to do, you know, without a lot of, uh, you know, constraints. It sounds like what America really should be all about, everything you just said. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, really America out here. And, you know, Gallup, too. You know, it's a small town, you know, the hub for the eastern, uh, you know, part of the Navajo Nation. It's a, you know, good, you know, Christian community. Uh, you know, people know the Bible here. You can talk, you know, Bible with, you know, just about anybody. Uh, you know, polite. It's in the middle of nowhere, so, you know, so everybody has to get along. Um yeah, yeah, it's a it's an interesting uh, 
a community interesting state. As well as being name checked in the famous song Route 66. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's on Route 66. I'm just a, like, <laughs> like, like a stone's uh, throw you know, to 66. And since on the on the quickly on the topic of music, uh, Dr. Strassman, on our episodes, we like to uh, do a playlist of music to accompany with the subject matter. Uh, is there any specific uh, music that you would uh, instruct us on that that is psychedelic in nature? Any favorites or are there any that you think accompany the whole spiritual journey? Well, I mean, uh, I mean, spiritual is a. Uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, it's a flexible term. Uh, it could mean any number of things. Well, I suppose if you're wondering um, about my uh, favorite groups, uh, well, the Ramones, you know, the early Ramones, I love them. Yeah. Um, now we're talking. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yes. Beat the Brat, Blitzkrieg, Bop. Blitzkrieg, uh, Bop. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, there's an African, you know, psychedelic rock group called uh, Tina Rewin, uh, spelled, uh, uh, you know, T-I-N-A-R-E, uh, you know, W-I-N. And, and I like Spangle. Um, I know, you know, Simon Posford and, you know, their early stuff really, uh, you know, touted DMT and the, uh, you know, psychedelic state. Awesome, man. Thank you. <laughs> I just wanted to say earlier, you know, we're talking about how we've come so far from psychedelics being so mysterious, and you know, it, it, how much it was a big part of supposedly the late 60s, early 70s, how it got demonized, how it became clinical, clinically researched to now it's tourism in South America. When you have Megan Fox talking about her experience with Machine Gun Kelly on Jimmy Kimmel Live about their ayahuasca trip. That's you know, hilarious. That's where we're at now. So I guess we are going through a renaissance of sorts. Uh, yeah. the, senior, the senior thought leaders on the subject matter. Yes. <laughs> right, right. The key opinion, uh, what's what's it called? The key opinion leaders. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Dr. Strassman, you know. There's so many other questions we wanted to get to you today, and it's been one hell of a one hour being with you, I have to say, and a very illuminating. And, you know, I just I want to shout out to my guys here and see if they have any last questions that they want to throw at you as we wrap this up, sir. Uh, I'll, I'll ask a quick question. You know, uh, I know you spoke, you touched on the war on drugs, and uh, I recently heard someone say that uh, – the war costs one trillion dollars. Um, they say thirteen point seven billion a year can be made annually off the sale of marijuana, enough to send six hundred fifty thousand students to public university. Uh, there's five hundred thousand people in the United States currently incarcerated on drug charges, and one point one million on parole. The lot, the damage that it's done to society and uh, human beings in the last 50 years, doctor is uh, so sad and disappointing. And uh, it's had a negative effect on the people that have been uh, affected by it. I think we've all been affected by it. Is it frustrating to you knowing that you've spent the majority of your professional career touting the positive use of this, seeing all this hellish uh, nightmares come to fruition and now, everybody on late night corporate 
back TV, government back TV saying, hey, it's fun to joke around about this stuff now. Go and do it. Yeah. Um, well, I think I you know, never have been you know, touting the you know, drugs as specific you know, things to you. Well, yeah, you know, I kept you know, clear of any you know, therapeutic intent in, in my studies, it, it was all, you know, pretty much, you know, psychopharmacology, what are the drugs doing and how, uh, in, you know, normal volunteers. Um, I never studied people with depression or addictions. Um, so I was, you know, careful, you know, not to, you know, glamorize their potential benefits or, you know, demonize their potential drawbacks. I you know, wanted to, you know, uh, just describe the effects in a certain number of people and what does that you know, say about the brain and the mind and the compounds themselves. Um, it, it, you know, kind of, you know, uh, you know I, I've got an ax, you know, to grind with, you know, people who, uh, you know, call these, uh, you know, compounds entheogens that they, you know, generate the God within, you know, that drives me crazy. Uh, you know, they're psychedelic. They manifest what's in your mind, you know, which is already there, you know, more or less consciously, you know, and, you know, that's why, you know, psychedelic is the best term, you know, not entheogen, you know, not hallucinogen, uh, you know, not, you know, psychotomimetic, you know, they're just, you know, psychedelic. They just, you know, manifest or disclose what's more or less already in your mind. Uh, you know, so I've always been in support of understanding what the drugs are doing and how. And if those effects could be turned to therapeutic use, you know, great. But, you know, that you know, does not mean that the drugs are inherently therapeutic. It means they can be used to improve outcomes for certain conditions. And, you know, they could be used, you know, for all kinds of, uh, uh, you know, terrible you know, reasons as well. You know, we earlier on were, you know, talking about, you know, Charles Manson, you know, they used LSD for, you know, to be, you know, psychedelic as well. You know, they had ideas that they wanted to become more true, to manifest them, to play them out, to, you know, develop their, you know, crazy worldview. You know, so it is completely, well, you know, the outcome of any, experience with you know psychedelics is 100% dependent on who takes them and why and in what environment and for what reason you know so um i've you know never you know said that you know people ought to take these drugs uh you know that's been you know kind of you know what other people um, have done with the increasing um, availability and interest in them these last few years um you know, and I'm all, uh, you know, for increased, uh, you, you know, for more options to, uh, you know, treat hard, uh, you know, to treat conditions, to improve wellness, to improve your spiritual practice. But, uh, you know, it isn't an inherent you know, property of the drugs is, uh, you know, more, you know, how they're applied and in whom. Um, and I've, you know, never been in, you know, favor of, uh, you know, completely liberalizing, you know, the laws regarding these drugs. I think, you know, they ought to be, you know, regulated in some form or another, you know, who gives them and, you know, where and, uh, you know, why. 
I think with increased availability, there's going to be increased reports of adverse effects. You know, but also there's going to be increased experiences which are also beneficial. Um, you know, back in the day, you know, there was uh, ongoing um, you know debate you know between you know the Tim Leary group, which uh, you know suggested everybody ought to trip, as compared to the Aldous Huxley you know group, which you know, said only the elite ought to trip. Um, and you know, bring back you know pristine information, ivory tower kind of tripping, as opposed to in the field kind of tripping, you know. So you know, there's you know pros and cons you know to both approaches. I you know never would have experienced you know psychedelics if it weren't for Tim's approach, um, you know. But at you know the same time, there wouldn't have been all those LSD uh, you know casualties you know back in the '60s, yeah. you, know, you know, as a result of you know, Tim's approach. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so I think education is key. You know, let you know people know what the drugs do, you know how they do it, what the best way of you know, taking them is, you know, to optimize uh, you know good outcomes and um, you know to minimize you know poor outcomes. Um, you know, so it's an evolution. Um, and I think I think we can all agree with that. Yeah, yeah. I think we can all agree with that. And, uh, you know, I just uh, I'll, I'll I'll help us wrap up here. I just want to say thank you for your time and. Uh, your uh, your story is uh, inspiring in that how you managed to navigate some really tricky waters over the last year to do some really incredible uh, incredible um, research that I think is ultimately going to help humanity. And uh, we and we had the privilege of uh, of speaking with you. So uh, for my part, thank you very much, uh, uh, Roger. I think you could take us out, my I friend. Have, I, I will. I just a couple of things. Uh, yes, yes, sir. You know, that dichotomy that you were talking about between uh, Aldous Huxley and uh, Timothy Leary was exemplified in the book, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. When Leary was the one who was doing the clinical trials versus the Mary Pranksters who were out tripping in the wilderness. And the, the Tom Wolf book, when they go on their journey there and they find Leary and, and, and um, Ken Kesey so excited to meet him in their first meeting, they have a complete clash of wills. At that time, of course, Leary changes his tune uh, not too long after that, as soon as he has his, his, uh, you know, uh, what his uh, research taken away from him. Right. Um, all right, sir. Well, I thank you so much. Uh, it, it sounded like in that last question, you know, there's the famous quote, I hate to advocate drugs, alcohol, violence, or insanity to anyone, but they've always worked for me. Hunter <laughs> uh, S. Thompson quote, of course, but that's not, it's not what I'm saying. You were kind of Switzerland on that last answer because <laughs> the neutrality. And I, I want, again, I want to thank you. It's been an honor. It's been a privilege of having you on board for this uh, one hour. We're very excited to get this posted very quick and you kicked off season two with a bang and with that ladies and gentlemen i want to thank all of you for listening and to remember uh to subscribe to us or like us or do something that makes us appreciate you know uh <laughs> what we're doing here is loved okay please and reach out to us if you have any ideas or suggestions or comments for uh, our show at five dollar buzz that's f-i-v-e d-o-l-l-a-r-b-u-z-z at gmail.com And you have a fantastically trippy day, my friends. Thank you.